This morning, Acts chapter 2, we're going to be covering verses 1 all the way down to verses 41 this morning. We're going to read it in sections, though, as the message progresses. So first this morning, before we read, I wanted to talk for a moment about amnesia. Uh, Amnesia, as you know, is a condition that's been caused by a number of different things where, where you forget things. And there's minor cases of amnesia where the memories come back. There's more serious cases where people can forget memories for a great length of time, sometimes even forever. They're not able to reform those memories at all. I was reading about a woman this week who uh, she had such a horrible case of amnesia, she, she forgot her life, and she had to piece it back together using journals that she had kept and so forth. But it's, it's got to be a displacing thing to forget who you are. It causes you to not know how you're supposed to behave towards different relationships. Surely, it would affect your expectation of, of how you're to act in the world in various different contexts. Amnesia would have a a debilitating effect on your ability to be who you are called to be. Well, I think that I and you and we, the Christian church, often suffer from spiritual amnesia. Often we suffer from forgetting who we are and the age in which we live. We forget what has happened and how that should shape and define us as the people of God. Well, the book of Acts is written as an anti-spiritual amnesia book. It's defined for us, it's given to us to transform us from those who are kind of walking zombies, forgetful of who we are, who God has called us to be, the age in which we live, and to propel us forward to be who we are supposed to be in this age, in the church age. That is defined in the book of Acts. We find our history and our identity here in this book. This book, the book of Acts, defines the power of God's Spirit propelling the word of Christ unstoppably forward in the creation of the church. It defines that through all of its chapters. And and we, as Christians, find our identity and history here. And even those who are not believers, this is the age in which they live. This is the reality in which they live, though they may not know that. God founded the church, and it's the same God who founded this church who works in the church today. The same gospel that started the church is still the cornerstone of the church. The same Lord of the church then is the Lord of the church now. So we need, I believe we need, this anti-amnesia shockwave of a book to deliver us from the spiritual forgetfulness that inclines us toward commonplace religious rhetoric and complacent Christian behaviors and expectations. So we're going to study five sections. We're not going to go through the whole book, but we're going to study five important sections in the book of Acts over the next six weeks. And I pray that the Spirit of God will use this spiritual history to awaken us to the miracle of our own salvation and the salvation age in which we live. I pray that this story this morning, this story of Pentecost, that we'll study in three sections as we read through it, I pray that it will, it will be an anti-amnesia biblical drug for us. I pray it will help us to see the reality that Christ has poured out God's Spirit to advance His gospel. Christ has poured out God's Spirit to advance His gospel. That's the reality that we must not forget, that we must live in light of. Let's walk through the story and let that affect energize us this morning. We'll read the first section, and then I'll comment, second section and comment, till we get to the final revival at the end of the passage. Let's begin with this opening section, which we might caption, God's Spirit arrives in power. When the day of Pentecost arrived, in verse 1, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because Each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. This opening scene in this overarching story it's one of the most memorable scenes in the New Testament. It's, it's meant to define how we think about our Christianity today. It's called Pentecost for a reason, because it took place at the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. It's roughly 50 days following the Passover. And this moment is profound. The church has gathered, this smallish group of about 120 believers, presumably, has gathered together. It's only been about 10 days since the Lord Jesus, having resurrected and having taught for about 40 days, ascended into heaven, telling them to wait in Jerusalem because they would receive the Holy Spirit not many days from then. He had told them that they would be witnesses to the ends of the earth, but that they were not to go forward in their own strength. They were to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then here we have it in chapter 2 when this overwhelming scene takes place. The passage begins with these these signs taking place. There is a sound of a mighty rushing wind that fills the house. Divided tongues or bits of fire appear and rest on each one of them. And And apparently this is not just a dream, not just a trance, because they are then empowered to begin speaking in actual earthly languages that they previously did not know. So this is a supernatural event. Actually, the symbolism here of the wind and the fire would immediately remind any Jew of Sinai, which incidentally took place in a similar time frame after they were delivered from Egypt, that God came down on Sinai in a power of sound and fury and met with God's people. But, but there's a distinction here in this event because the bits of fire, which God appeared as fire to the Israelites in the, in the wilderness, it, it rests on each one of them, indicating some kind of individual encounter with God that is taking place. And each of them begin to speak in different languages that they don't know, which would be obviously a surprise to them, wondering what what is happening. Something profound that reminds us of God's mighty work in the past is happening, but, but what is taking place? Now, this would have just been the greatest church service of all time, except that the sound of their voices, and perhaps the sound of the wind, we don't know, (coughs) spills over into the surrounding street, the surrounding area. So then people are wondering what is going on, and we get the second section where they begin to comment, how how are we hearing in our own language the mighty works of God? You notice there in verse 7, a multitude in verse 6 comes and is amazed and astonished, saying, "These, these guys are all Galileans. They're all locals. How how do they know all of these languages? What is going on? Or as they put it, what does this mean? In verse 12. What does this mean? 
Now, without question, the fact that people from so many nations are able to hear the glories of God is meant, by Luke, the writer, is meant to have symbolic significance. It's not just a, a, a one-off kind of miracle that doesn't have any meaning. God's able to do both at the same time. He's able to do miracles that also have biblical meaning. So this certainly has a profound meaning. This would be a reflection in symbolic form of what Jesus just told his disciples that they would be witnesses to the end of the earth. And it's an indication that this event, this outpouring of the Spirit, and this birth of the church will be a multilingual, multinational event, and that the people of God in Christ will be made from people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that seed in seed form, when these people begin to proclaim the glories of God in languages they do not know. It's possible that these were people that had been dispersed and then lived in Jerusalem then permanently. Perhaps some of them had also come in for the feast. For whatever reason, they are living there, and they begin hearing, shockingly, their native tongue proclaiming the glory of God. John Stott helps us to see the value of this particular miracle, he says, nothing could have demonstrated more clearly that this, the multiracial, multinational, multinature of the kingdom of Christ. Ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confused and the nations were scattered. In Jerusalem, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ, prefiguring the great day when the redeemed company will be drawn from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So the spirit that previously was at a distance and only available to a few is poured out on all. The languages that have previously been scattered are now supernaturally unified. And people from all languages are compelled to ask, what does this mean? Which leads to the second section when through a sermon, what this means is Provided. Let's keep reading. Peter in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, and my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let All the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. What a sermon. I mean, can you imagine being there and hearing that sermon? Here is the former coward and trembling, confident, proud fisherman, Peter, who stands up... (laughs) not trembling anymore, and empowered by the Spirit, begins to preach to a crowd that is wondering, what does this mean? He provides the meaning. I will tell you exactly what this means. His opening point or introduction begins by explaining that the pouring out of God's Spirit is not a surprise, it's not unexpected, because the prophet Joel, inspired by God, had said, this will happen in the latter days. So he gets, quote, Scripture. There's something, as an aside, briefly to point out here, that good preachers and good Christians always define experience by God's Word. So he points them to God's word in Joel, and he says, God declared that I would pour out my spirit, and the point here is that it would not just be on certain anointed leaders like Moses and David and the prophets. Rather, it will be on all kinds of people, sons and daughters. There's no gender distinction here. Young or old, no age distinction here. Even male and female servants, no economic distinction here. In other words, all of God's people of any strata will receive the Spirit of God and will be compelled to serve God in an anointed way. And then he points to the future and says that there will be signs of blood and fire and vapor of smoke. This points to the great day of the Lord that is one day coming. But then he says, for right now, this is true in verse 21, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's explaining the outpouring of the Spirit by saying this this is something God predicted. God would send his Spirit to come upon every believer of every time of station. He said he would do this in the last days. So here we are in the last days. And remember, before the final day comes, there will be signs in the heaven above and on the earth below. And, and, and what are we to make of all this? Well, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that phrase allows Peter to get into the meat of his sermon, the person of Jesus Christ. He, he might have said, so to speak, you, you might ask, who, who is this Lord that we're to call on? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about him. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. And he begins to preach in verse 22 about Jesus Christ. Look down at your Bibles. He says a number of things there. He says, first of all, this man was attested as God's man by mighty works and signs. The healings, the resurrections, the demonic deliverances. He's saying this man clearly was represented by God's power in all of his ministry. He, he did this not in secret, but present, enough to be seen, enough that it could have been known that in some powerful way he represented the Lord. But in verse 23, Peter says, here's the shock. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And let's be clear, you, speaking to the crowd of Israelites there, 
that crowd that is representative of those people who called out for him to be crucified, you crucified him and handed him to lawless men. Now, this is a profound theological statement that I just want to take a brief aside. I just want to look down at your Bibles and notice Notice the combination of these phrases in Peter's sermon. He just throws it in there. But it is profound. This Jesus, look at this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Now, this is an aside, but it is worth noting. I don't know of a better verse that defines the biblical teaching that God is sovereign and people are responsible than that verse. Because there has never been, never been, and never will be, a greater act of wickedness than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There has never been a greater act of the innocent being sinfully and wrongfully accused and even put to death. And these men, clearly in this passage, Peter makes it very clear, you are responsible. You killed him. Even knowing what you knew of his mighty works that must have been from God, you defied that evidence and you crucified him. You sinned against light, against knowledge. You killed him. God planned it all. The scriptures present both unashamedly, unequivocally, God planned it. It was his plan, his foreknowledge. He intended Christ to die, and the people who killed him are sinfully responsible. So we preach both. The sinful responsibility of people who defy their maker, in this case, defy the evidence of who Christ was, and the ultimate sovereignty of God, what they meant for evil, God did for good. Let's keep going. This Savior, Peter says, who was crucified, here's the shocker. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, there's a whole theology that's packed into that verse that death only has power because of sin. And once the power of sin is broken, death has no ability to lay claim on the person who is not under the condemnation of sin. And since Christ satisfied the condemnation of sin, death could not hold him. Actually, the language there is the language of giving birth. As if to say, Christ comes out the first of a new creation, not able to be held by the pangs of death. And then he quotes again from Scripture, so that they're very clear. I'm not bringing you some new idea. These things are found in your Scriptures. He quotes Psalm 16. And the point he particularly wants to make from Psalm 16 is down there in verse 27. He says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he keeps going. He says, brothers, let's, let's just think about this for a moment. Isn't it quite clear, as he keeps going, you look at your Bibles. As he keeps going, he says, isn't it quite clear that David, David went into the grave and did not rise from it? We still know where he's buried. So... If that's true, who was David referring to that did not see the corruption of the grave? It's as though he's bringing their own Bible to them and saying, who do you think David was talking about? Do you think he was talking about himself and he was massively surprised in death to find that he was not raised from the dead? Do you think that's what he means? No, he says, no. I may tell you with confidence. I may tell you with confidence he died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Here's what I think the right interpretation is, Peter says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That Christ was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus, God has raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. He stands as one who had seen the risen Christ. This isn't hearsay. This isn't rumor. I stand and put my own life on the line to declare that he actually did rise from the dead. And then he says, he didn't just rise from the dead to walk around on earth endlessly. No, there's more than that. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having, listen to this, listen to this, he's circling all the way back to the question at the beginning, what does this mean? He says, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Then he quotes Psalm 110. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, Yahweh said to my sovereign king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Christ fulfills all of the prediction that a king would ascend to God's right hand, that he would be the equal of God, that he would be able to represent God in divinity, overseeing all of God's people. So the pouring out of God's spirit is not just an incidental event. It proves that the Messiah stands at the right hand of God. It confirms that the Holy One did not see corruption, that his sacrifice was sufficient. It reveals that Christ stands as God's own Son at God's right hand, having authority to pour out God's own Spirit to fulfill God's plan in the final days. What does this mean, Peter says? It means the Messiah sits at God's throne that God's spirit predicted has come to all kinds of people, that the last days are upon us. That's what this means. John Stott says it this way. It is the unanimous conviction of the New Testament authors that Jesus inaugurated the last days or messianic age and that the final proof of this was the outpouring of the Spirit since this was the Old Testament promise of promises for the end time. The whole messianic era which stretches between the two comings of Christ is the age of the Spirit in which his ministry is one of abundance. What is the age in which you live? The age when the exalted Christ pours out God's unlimited spirit for his unstoppable gospel. What is the age in which you live? It is the age in which the exalted Christ pours out God's unlimited spirit for his unstoppable gospel. That is the age in which you live. You, teenager, you, middle-aged Christian, you, senior, you live in this age. How easy to function in spiritual amnesia and forget when we live. This is the age in which we live. It is the age of the Spirit But we wouldn't want it to seem as if the Spirit, so to speak, gets center stage so much as he confirms and empowers the one who has center stage, which is the glory of Christ. We don't want to minimize the power of the Spirit because that demonstrates the glory of Christ. The importance of the Spirit is made clear in this passage and throughout the book. The difference between their experience of God's presence in the Old Covenant and their experience of God's presence in the New Covenant, there is a clear distinction that Luke is at pains to point out, but not so much so that the Spirit receives exclusive focus, but so that Christ can receive the honor he deserves as the one, the one who can give the Spirit without measure. John Stott says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. And that's coming from an Anglican. 
apart from the Spirit of God. There is no church. And unless we function as if we live in the age of the unlimited spirit, we actually minimize the true exaltation of Christ. Actually, I love one of the points that John the Baptist makes when they're questioning him, who are you? And, and, and he says, I, I, am not, I am not the Christ. And one of the ways he distinguishes himself from the Christ is he says, look, I, I can baptize you with water, but he, he can baptize you in the Spirit. It's one of the ways that he distinguishes, look, we, they've had prophets, we, we've been anointed. Uh, yes, we, you can see the Spirit in us, and we, we can do some things, but, but there is one so that the fullness of the Spirit is not an antithesis to the glory of Christ. It demonstrates and reveals the exaltation of Christ. And the Spirit is not about exalting himself. He is about propelling forward the glory and purpose of Christ. So this sermon actually gives us a wonderful mechanism for understanding church life. Empowered by the unlimited Spirit, we proclaim and treasure the gospel of Christ. This is the miracle that needs to define our days. It is the miracle of Christ. And Paul, Peter, rather, his climactic point is made in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain, let it break through your amnesia, that God, the God, the only God, has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. Oh, and here's an application nail, if ever there was one. Whom... You crucified. Which leads to the third and final section of this event. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here is the miracle of revival flowing from the power of the Spirit empowering the message of Christ. They are cut to the heart. They are aware that they crucified God's chosen Messiah. They are fully aware of their eternal danger, and they cry out, what must we do? And here is the miracle of God's grace within the miracle of his salvation, because he could say nothing. There is nothing you can do. You are cut off. You are finished. Like Saul, like Esau, you are done but no, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And despite your sin, despite your background, despite the fact that you are among those who crucified the Lord of glory, you will be forgiven and you will receive the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. And this offer is not limited to you. It extends to your children. The promise of forgiveness in response to repentance and faith extends to your children in verse 39. And all those whom God God calls to himself. Luke is very careful to combine again both the call for repentance and the reminder that those who come, come because God called them. And with many other words, it says, he exhorted them. He exhorted them, save yourselves. In the context, it means come to Christ and repentance and faith. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. 
Come, 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 come. You must repent of your sins. You must change your mind about Christ by the power of the Spirit and believe him to be the crucified and risen Lord. You must come to him. You must find your identity, your reality in him. You must not live in the sinful amnesia that has characterized your days. You must come to him. It's his world. Come to him. 3,000 people. 3,000 people. I mean, we're told the church was 120 people. 3,000 people. Can you imagine 3,000 people begging to be baptized at the same time? 3,000 people claiming the name of Jesus. Claiming And in the culture, this would be impossibly shocking and scandalous that a crucified man is God's Messiah. 3,000 people gladly standing with a man crucified by the Romans. Only the Spirit of God. Now, have... I, have you, have we been living in any amnesia to this reality? Is this your Christianity? This is Christianity. Is it yours? Is it mine? It's not that every day is a new Pentecost. No, 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 there's one Pentecost. But every day we live in the age of Pentecost. It's not that every day sees 3,000 people saved, but every day we know the same Lord who sovereignly brings salvation to sinners. It's not that every day we get to hear Peter preach the gospel, but we get to preach the same gospel to ourselves and to others that Peter preached. Too often, we live in the amnesia of the age that God has called us to enjoy. The age of the crucified, risen, and exalted Christ. The age of the unlimited spirit propelling forward the unstoppable gospel. We live in that age. That is the age in which we live. Now, I want to press this point to two different kinds of people. And the first is those who are not Christians. And and of that group, I want to divide those into two different kinds of people. The non-Christians, some of which you might say you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're here out of kindness to a friend who invited you, and and, and you just finally, they've invited you 12 times. You're like, I got to go to church eventually, see what they do there. Thank you for coming. We're so glad you're here. I also want to speak to those who would, would profess to be a Christian But you know in your heart that you have never genuinely surrendered to Jesus Christ's authority and trusted in his salvation alone, and you've been going through the motions. Perhaps you are a child of a Christian. Perhaps you've been a professing Christian for a long time. We invite as members, though, who profess faith and show no evidence contradicting that, but we can't know people's hearts. So it's possible that even a member of this church actually in their heart is saying things with their mouth when their heart is far from Jesus. It's possible. So I want to speak to that group first. If if that is you, I I, I can't be Peter, but if I can and, and... I want, I want to bring that word back to you this morning. God has made Jesus Lord and Christ. He rules over this world. This moment is a brief season of his mercy when you can do what they did. You can repent of your sins. You can acknowledge your wrongdoing. You can believe in him as your only savior. You can live in the reality that this world is all about Jesus Christ. No matter what the late night comedians say, no matter what the political pundits say, no matter what any president or any king says, no, this world is about Christ. Your life is about Christ whether you know it or not and you must repent and believe in him 
Let me particularly appeal to the young among us. Please, as I was preparing this, I just continued to feel the burden of your souls. And I know your names. I'm not talking to generic young people, like a preaching category. Talk to the old, talk to the young, talk to the sick. No, no. We're talking about actual young people. And you know I love you. But I don't know your heart. And I do not want my high fives on Sunday and playing frisbee and soccer with you at the park to convince you that I don't think your soul has eternal danger if you haven't turned to Jesus. Listen, I grew up the way you grew up. In a church. I know you know all the answers. I know you don't do things a lot of other terrible people do out there. I know that. That doesn't save you. It might convince you that you don't need to worry about being saved, but it doesn't save you. You must repent and believe in Jesus. You must save yourselves from this crooked generation. You must lay claim on him as Savior and Lord. You must be cut to the heart. I wanted to pass on this morning to you something that my pastor, when I was a kid, told me in a sermon. And it it affected me, and I pray it will affect you. He was talking about kids who grew up in church, and he was saying, you know, it's, it's so possible to look at the sinfulness of those around you and to compare yourself favorably and say, well, I don't do those things. I don't do the things that other people do. I'm better than they are. And to feel a certain kind of confidence, even a cockiness in that way. But he said, you, you, you sin against light. I think what he meant by that was something like this. Imagine for a moment that a very kind family, your family perhaps, suddenly found a, an orphaned child, wild, running in the streets with, with all kinds of horrible background, no training, just the most diabolical conditions, and they decided, we're going to shelter that person in our home. And that young person comes into your home and immediately creates disaster. He's hoarding food in his room. Mold begins to grow. He's angry. He finds valuable things and steals them. He breaks things. He begins fighting with other people. And you can look at that and think, we, we would never do that. Compare that to the person who has grown up in the loving home, grown up cared for, grown up instructed with thousands of gospel messages ringing in their ears, and they secretly steal a little bit of money from dad or a little bit of something from mom. They tempt and harm their siblings in secret. They laugh at crude jokes. Which do you think is worse? This, who has lived in darkness all of their life and knows nothing of provision and protection and love and kindness and security and does what they have grown up training themselves to do? Or you, who has grown up with all of those blessings and sins anyway? When I sin, I sin against light and background and training and knowledge and good godly parents and godly uncles and pastors who loved and cared for me. I sin against those things. So if you're a young person in church and you congratulate yourself, well, I'm much better than all those other people. (laughs) Yes, and you have received much more and to whom much is given much will be required young people i am not talking to some hypothetical kid out there i am talking to you i want you to examine your heart and if necessary i want you to repent and believe 
in Jesus Christ. And whatever sins need repented of, let me appeal to you that Christ is ready to forgive you. He is ready to claim you. He is ready to forgive you for wanting to live on the fence of cultural acceptability and Christian morality without giving up either. He is ready to forgive you for that. He is ready to forgive you because he is merciful and gracious and he calls on you to come to him. Charles Spurgeon says this, Christ receives not the self-righteous, not the good, not the wholehearted, not those who dream that they do not need a savior, but the broken in spirit, the contrite in heart. Those, please God, may there be people willing to say this. Those who are ready to confess that they have broken God's laws and have merited his displeasure. These and these alone. Christ came to save. Jesus has died for such and for none other. He has shed his blood for those who are ready to confess their sins and who do seek mercy through the open veins of his wounded body. But for none other did he designedly offer up himself upon the cross. Please, if you think yourself to be a falsely assured moral churchgoer and not a Christian, Come to Christ in repentance, honoring his lordship, and believe. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to live not a fence life, but a wholehearted life toward him. Second category, briefly. If you are a Christian, and nothing of what I just said is designed to unsettle an unsteady conscience, okay? If you genuinely follow the Lord but are aware of your sin, if you are genuinely seeking to repent but are aware you're not perfect yet, let me reassure you, let me reassure you, the Spirit preserves our limited and weak efforts as we make our way towards Zion. If you are a Christian, Let this story remind us of the age in which we live. This is the age of the exalted Christ, brothers and sisters. This, this is the age. This is not the age, not the age of minimalistic, moralistic, religious Christians. It is not that age. It is the age of the risen Christ pouring out the unlimited spirit for the unstoppable gospel. That is the age in which you live. You do not even have to live in the age prior to the coming of Christ when all of those dear saints in the past had to look forward in faith to a day they would not see. No, you get to live in the age of the ages. The age. Do you have any idea how much David would have longed to live in this age? How much Moses would have longed. How much Elijah did long to live in this age. Longing to see what we see. And to know what we know. You live in this age. You live in the age when a former coward becomes a powerful evangelist. When a lowly slave can be a preacher of the gospel of the exalted Lord of the universe. You live not in the age of bare minimum morality, of bare minimum church going, of dangling between the idols of this age and the age to come. No, you live in the age of the unlimited spirit and the unstoppable gospel. You do not live in the age where neutral homes are appropriate. 
You live in the age where spirit-empowered fathers and mothers can preach a divine Christ to needy children. You don't live in the age where you're afraid to suffer or even to die in the name of Christ. You live in the age where you can say with these apostles, I, I gladly die for the sake of Christ. You don't live in the age where you're aiming for comfort primarily, but for Christ exclusively. You live in that age. We live in that age. You don't live in the age of trying in your own strength to do what God calls you to do. You live in the age when the Spirit of God has been poured out and you can receive that Spirit in fullness to do all that God has called you to do. One of the main reasons I think that Christianity often lacks power in the Christian life is that we want it. We want it to be a quiet, moral religion where we avoid certain sins and do not stand out much from the culture around us. But... But we follow a Savior who has sent the presence of God himself to his people. And we should not be content until we are seeing and responding to the power of God at work in the message of the gospel in us and around us. Not every day is a visible revival. But we live in the age of the reviving spirit. And we should be looking for the small expressions of revival and running towards them in our heart and in the lives of those around us. We must cast off worldly, mostly Western, minimalistic, worldly amnesia and be brought into the reality in which we live. The exalted Christ has poured out the unlimited spirit of God for his unstoppable gospel. This is real. This is when you live. And if you are a Christian, this is who you are. Let's pray. Lord, we gather on Sunday to be reminded who we are and who you are and to cast aside all our other reasons for confidence, all our other hopes, all our other idols, to cast them aside and be renewed towards you. That you are our life. That once we were lost, but then you found us. Once we were living in sin and you redeemed us and Lord, we live for your glory. So Lord, fill us with your spirit to be where and when and who we are. In Jesus' name, receive this song.